1: Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. Member FDIC. Copyright 2024 J.P. Morgan Chase and Co.
0: The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers From Pushkin Industries, this is Deep Background, the show where we explore the stories behind the stories in the news. I'm Noah Feldman. And right now, the only story that anyone is talking about is coronavirus. In order to make sense of coronavirus, we decided to speak to Siddharth Mukherjee, who is probably the foremost interpreter in my generation of the meaning of disease and how it affects our daily lives. You probably know his book, The Emperor of All Maladies, A Biography of Cancer, which won the 2011 Pulitzer Prize for general nonfiction. You may also know his 2017 book, The Gene, An Intimate History. Sid Hart is a voice of reason, logic, and thoughtfulness, and he's the person I wanted to hear from at exactly this moment of panic. So Sid, maybe we could start by my just asking you, how have you been thinking medically, statistically, personally, or otherwise about the coronavirus epidemic as it gradually rolls itself out?
2: Well, so there are several questions in that because there's a I've been thinking different medically, personally and statistically, but let me just tell you um, a very broad sort of landscape view. Um, right now, we're in a moment of of some some degree of confusion. There are like any epidemic. Or, like any virus, coronavirus has some absolutes. In other words, there's some absolute things about the virus that are determined by its biology and by the interaction of that biology with the host. There's a real number which predicts how many people you infect if you, you know, what the so called R naught value is and what the case fatality rate is, et cetera. And we need to know those very much in order to understand how to develop an effective strategy against it, whether it be quarantine or, you know, medicines or whatever it might be. The problem is that those numbers are occluded by random chance events and by underreporting of, of the actual virus. So what, what do I mean that, by that? If you look at the map of, of uh, the spread, there are, as you know, 80,000-odd cases in China. There are 1,000-odd cases in Japan. There are X-thousand-odd cases, uh, you know, in neighboring countries. But then there are some, obviously, some peculiar anomalies. There's this big case load in Italy of all places, in Northern Italy, in Lombardy and other places. Why did all of a sudden it skip all of Europe and become this major um, uh, infection in Northern Italy? It's not as if you know Wuhan and you know Venice are major crisscrossing destinations for each other. I mean, there is tourism, of course, between, between Italy and China, but something bizarre happened there. Something that we can, that we cannot simply explain. So we are in a situation where we have to get we have to provide two kinds of explanations. One kind of explanation is as what I call are the viral absolutes, uh, the epidemiological absolutes, and the statistical. Absolutes, what is the actual number of cases that is being detected or, or found, and then there are these things that you know how do we explain it uh, that places that shouldn't seem to have any connection are suddenly epicenters of the worst parts of the epidemic um, and that's what's that's what's very confusing about it at at the moment so f- from what you've said, the problem is that although there
0: are absolutes. We definitely don't know them now, and we may not know them until very, very late in this process. They're out there
2: somewhere, but we can't get at them. The best way to get at them is, is to let time, is, is to let a little bit more time pass. And I'm not talking about a lot of time. I'm talking about, you know, a process of weeks, uh, maybe a couple of weeks, three weeks, etc. Um, and then also to, in the meantime, to separate the, the wheat from the shaft. So to separate out the things that are occluding these absolutes, uh, such as random movements and underreporting, and find out what the real numbers are so that we get some sense in a given population what these epidemiological absolutes are. What is the actual case fatality rate? Um, so if you look, for instance, in the United States, there have been 500 odd cases and 22 deaths. That would put the case fatality rate at you know, 4%, give or take. If you look at uh, another place um, in parts of Europe, there've been a thousand cases and three deaths, which would put it a full magnitude less than the United States. So, Mm -hmm. but there there is an actual number. There's a number to be had, or even a range of numbers to be had of what the actual case fatality rate is. And the decision of the severity of the epidemic will depend on that actual case fatality rate. There is an actual number, an absolute truth as to the number of people you you are likely to infect under normal circumstances of in it through going through a normal day, so it will take a few days, perhaps weeks, before some of these clouds clear, and we begin to get actual real estimates of what those numbers are. We're getting there. We have a sense of what it is. I think with uh, with COVID nineteen, uh, but it's not all there yet, and and we're slowly getting there.
0: So, first point then for listeners, I think is that this number, which we're all going to have to become very familiar with, the R0 or r naught, as you called it, which is the number that tells us for a person who's infected and is exposed to others, how many people will become infected, is going to become clearer in the relatively near
2: future. And of course, it might, it might depend on the genetics of a population. That's a very important point, which is to figure out whether there are some populations uh, that are particularly susceptible, whereas... Mm-hmm. Some populations are particularly non-susceptible. We just don't know that uh, yet. But again, these numbers will become clear.
0: Once they do become clear, what will the next step really be? Because then we leave the realm of absolutes and we enter the realm of social policy response.
2: First of all, if it turns out that the number of people that you can infect while you're an asymptomatic carrier of the virus... Is large, then it makes most sense to uh, impose quarantining and rather draconian quarantining in areas that are very severely affected.
0: As China has done.
2: As China has done, that's correct. So if both of those things are true, if, if you're an asymptomatic carrier and you can infect a large number of people, then quarantining and other sort of, I would say broadly, prophylactic measures work. Uh, number two is to identify the susceptible population, like who is the most susceptible population to the exposure? Uh, Remember in the early days of um, the HIV epidemic uh, in the United States, those numbers came about quite slowly, but eventually were figured out. There was a susceptible population, uh, men who had sex with men, and there was a susceptible population of hemophiliacs who were receiving blood transfusions. Of course, internationally, now that's no longer true. The vast number of people infected with HIV are are no longer those two populations. It's mm-hmm. now become a completely different disease. But when you identify susceptible populations where you have a, a high level of transmission of risk, then you can make social policy measures which are not as blunt as the ones that are made with without those. So they, they can be much more targeted. You target the people at risk and you try to figure out how to move about life and business and economy without imposing the kind of very draconian quarantining efforts that we've seen in, in places like China.
0: So let's try to see if even under these conditions of uncertainty, you can't guide our listeners through some kind of rational behavior. I'm not saying rational behavior once we know the numbers, but rational behavior right now under conditions of uncertainty. So let's take a really simple example. Um, You know, I planned a month ago to bring my kids on a spring break trip to New Orleans. So it's domestic travel. They're kids. Very few kids have gotten this. If they have gotten it, they haven't haven't had very bad symptoms. But of course, New Orleans is a tourist destination. There are lots of people there. If you click on the Louisiana State Board of Health, they say there are no reported cases in Louisiana. You look at the CDC website. It doesn't tell you not to engage in any domestic travel. And yet, on the other hand, You know, universities are in the process, as we speak, of telling everybody that they're going to run their classes remotely, even in places with very few cases of the disease reported. How irrational is it uh, or how rational is it to say, you know, we've planned this trip, we're going to go, we're not in any great risk factor. Airplane travel is not inherently more dangerous than getting on public transportation.
2: There's a question of, uh, particularly in this society, there's a question of, Personal liability versus, uh, I would say, institutional liability. So, and they're different. When you're taking your children to travel with with you to New Orleans, um, I agree with you that the risk is small. Children, as you very well know, don't seem to get the severe variant of the disease. In fact, I'd be more worried about you yeah. than, than than your children. <laughs> um, but you're taking that on as a personal liability. Institutions, um, as you know, uh, especially in this climate political climate and social climate, um, don't want to take institutional liabilities. It's the difference between personal liability and institutional liability that we're talking about. I would say the likelihood that a Stanford student will get a severe variant of COVID-19 is extremely low. The closure of the university and conversion of into remote classes is not the biggest deal. And so in, in that risk-benefit analysis, the institution chose to diminish their institutional liability by saying, look, you know, we, we have the infrastructure already to do this. Um, and so we'll go ahead. This is in great contrast to, for instance, the New York uh, school system. As you very well know, the New York school system is not just a school system, but it's a social network. And it's a social network that, that provides meals often to underprivileged uh, and, uh, and kids from very poor backgrounds. If they were to stay at home, they would mean that their parents would need to take time off work and you know the economic costs would be staggering. So closing down a school system where there is no simple infrastructure for remote schooling anyway, plus the actual school provides a safe haven for millions of kids, the question of institutional liability is completely different. So um, in in your particular case, I think that's a personal liability that you're taking with pretty minimal risk. And then that, that, by the way, that
0: might not only be about any potential downside for me or my kids. It might be about we don't want to become carriers. And the reality is that the more people circulating, the more difficult it becomes to restrain the spread of the virus. And so it might be as a publicly interested matter you know, one arguably ought to stay home.
2: Right. And, and again, the, the question really becomes a question of uh, looking very dispassionately at risk versus benefit. So remember that if you look through, um, as anyone might, you can, it's all accessible. There are recommendations now for virtually every country uh, where you could travel to in terms of completely restrict travel, restrict unnecessary uh, travel, um, or be free to travel. It would be helpful to have that for uh, the United States as well in terms of potentially every city or state that you're traveling to because the hotspot areas are known. Um, So in other words, someone like you should be able to, without multiple clicks, go to Louisiana, go to New Orleans, figure out what the case numbers are today and figure out what the actual risk is and uh, make a personal decision whether to take on that risk, whatever it might be.
0: Can I ask a policy question that that follows from that? So one interesting thing to me is that no government website uh, has said the following. We advise you not to engage in unnecessary travel, even to places where there are no reported cases. That has not been said on any government website. And yet, my guess is that many physicians would say, well, this is common sense. Don't engage in unnecessary travel, even to an unaffected place. I mean, my university sent around guidelines saying if it's university business, no unnecessary travel on university business anywhere uh, within the domestic United States. So what I'm wondering is, as a physician, do you have the sense that there is some gap between what rational medical professionals would at this point recommend and what government agencies are recommending, maybe potentially for political reasons. You know, I, in other words, I don't have I don't have the faith that I would like to have that the CDC hasn't advised me not to travel domestically because it's safe to do so, as opposed to the CDC hasn't recommended that I not travel domestically because they're worried that the president will get angry at them because he'll say they're shutting down the economy.
2: Um, well, I think the CDC is being quite... Uh... Rational and careful here. Um, I don't think uh, I'm not sure, but I don't think that the reason that the CDC has not issued a blanket a statement against travel is that it's 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 trying to appease the president. I just think the CDC is is trying to be reasonable about uh, shutting down. You know, things that make the the normal business uh, and the normal lives of Americans livable under these circumstances.
0: Sid, one of your superpowers is not only to be a top-end scientist, but also to be able to explain to us the cultural meanings uh, of our interaction with scientific reality. When you wear that hat, your interpreter of Maladie's hat, how do you think about what we're going through at the moment?
2: Well, I think that in some ways, uh, this reads like the a, a modern version of uh, Camus' uh, The Plague. Um, the first set of uh, decisions that were made in Wuhan, which we now know and understand uh, a little bit better, were made out of fear and were actually extraordinarily erroneous decisions, which in turn points to the idea that um, given the globalization of the world, given the nature of travel, given the nature of the interactions between people you know this this isn't this isn't a china only problem it soon becomes a world problem china is suffering grave economic consequences of this now um, and it will continue to suffer grave economic consequences but those grave economic consequences were themselves the consequences of a political regime which is fundamentally unable to be uh, free with information so the first thing it highlights, I think, in the cultural realm is that information moves at light speed around the world today. And that's a good thing in the case of an epidemic. The suppression of information, a paternalistic attitude towards a grave disease is a terrible decision to make. Um, and in some ways, um, there's a kind of reckoning that's going on within, within China, as uh, many people have noted, there's a reckoning that's going on whether this can continue or not. I mean, can this statewide uh, suppression of of, of facts? Um, we still don't know actually what's true and what's not true. The Chinese are now telling us that their quarantining has been extraordinarily successful, et, et cetera. men presidents who believe in confining people are very likely to believe this kind of rhetoric. Oh, you know, just throw everyone into you know, behind blue doors and uh, it'll all be fine. So I think what it's revealed, um, I think, is the is how vulnerable the world is to uh, political regimes that have really become outdated and how quickly information can move, how restricting that information can have grave consequences for the country itself.
0: What if it turns out, though, that notwithstanding... China's restriction on information, and notwithstanding the fact that we, of course, can't trust uh, what the government is saying about data, that the rather draconian response that they did worked really well. I mean, I can imagine, you know, this is just one of the possible states of the world, but I can imagine an outcome where it actually turns out that the draconian response was very effective, and that the less draconian responses that may be undertaken by more liberal countries like the United States turn out not to contain the disease as well.
2: Absolutely, and which is again why, um, you know, a kind of uh, help from the the CDC would be is coming and, and, and is most appreciated. Uh, I should also say that the the way to do this, it's really uh, threading a needle and threading a needle very carefully. This is going on right now in Italy, as you very well know. I mean, the Italians are famously suspicious of their political system. They enjoy an enormous uh, number of liberties and freedoms. And, you know, their, their police cars parked along the major highways of in Northern Italy, making sure that people don't move. You can't imagine the, the conflict between those two cultures, giving up the people who have enjoyed historically and, and continue to enjoy an enormous amount of personal freedoms, forcing them uh, not to move, not to congregate in the square or to go to their local bar for a casual drink is obviously extraordinarily disruptive. So um, I think we'll have to thread a very fine needle in terms of identifying hotspots, um, identifying the vulnerable populations and giving reasonable advice, which takes the cost and benefit risk appropriately. And it has to be done on a case by case basis. Uh, It can't be done on a blanket basis yet. Now, if it turns out that the you know there's more mutations coming, more, you know, if it turns out that you can get reinfected by the virus, which we don't know yet, it's unlikely, but we don't know yet. Um, then of course, all bets are off.
0: I wanted to ask you actually about that, about the, the genetic side of it, wearing your geneticist hat. What do you think are, maybe it's impossible to say, but the probabilities of evolution happening rather quickly in the middle of the, the outbreak in such a way that we get not only the question of people getting reinfected, but also potentially just different strains of COVID-19, you know, COVID-20 or 21 uh, making their way into the population.
2: Well, it depends on what the counter pressures are, as it were, because uh, evolution happens uh, through various mechanisms uh, with these uh, viruses, with these families of viruses. And usually uh, the sort of the the big evolutionary change, as it were, which is the assortment of the segments of RNA have already happened. Most of these viruses come from other populations, other animals. And so therefore usually have not developed strategies to evade the immune system and remain or or become chronic in humans. Mm -hmm. In terms of new epidemics, it was an exception with HIV uh, but aside from that, most of these viruses, usually once you get immunity to it, you get immunity to it and you don't get reinfected. We think that that's the case, given what's happened. Otherwise, you you know, Wuhan would still be flaring. Yes. Uh, so based on all the information that we have, if it's true information, we have a center of the epidemic where there was a wave of deaths, unfortunately, but then it stopped brewing. It's not flaring still. So to some extent, um, the best information that we have so far is that the virus, of course, it will mutate, but that immunity does develop to it and that immunity is protective. Um, that's very good news for future vaccines. A vaccine is not coming tomorrow, but that's very good news for a future vaccine because, of course, you need immunity. Is there anything that you think
0: we're missing from the public discourse around COVID-19 right now?
2: Well, one thing that's missing is you know, look, getting a vaccine is is will take a long time because vaccines are complicated to make. They're complicated to test. They have to be tested on populations. They have to be produced at a very high standard. It, what, what's missing is uh, why and and why not um, for the people who are actually falling sick. Uh, why or why not we don't have um, either antibodies or or in other words biological or small molecules that are directed against the uh, viral uh, enzymes. We know that the genome has been sequenced. We know what the, what the vulnerabilities are. And I know that there's several facilities that are screening for uh, small molecules as well as biologics that will help. These are not vaccines, right? So These are injected biologics that will enact, hopefully inactivate the virus. So um, an update from uh, the CDC on that process, those kinds of um, ideas from the nation's highest authority in terms of the management of illness would be a helpful thing to have because uh, talking emptily about a vaccine, which could really be months away, is not, not gonna help right now. If if we could say to, to you that, you know, if you get really, really sick, uh, here's where we are in terms of medicine development for this, and there's no better country in the world, I think, than the United States in developing medicines. Uh, then I think there'll be less uncertainty and panic around uh, what's happening next in terms of medical development against uh, the virus. Last question for you, Sid. What are you telling your kids? Well, so, I mean, we've been following every day what the CDC has been recommending. I mean, thankfully, as I said, children are not uh, the worst affected Uh we have not been uh, doing anything except saying uh, to them try to in in New York City where now there are several cases we've been telling them try to avoid public places which are not uh, you know where there's not where you're not it's not necessary to go uh, wash your hands frequently um, as frequently as possible and if you know someone who's sick or uh, obviously if you have uh, symptoms yourself let us know at the earliest I mean nothing more and nothing less than that.
0: I also led with my kids with the don't worry, you're going to be fine. Kids don't seem to be getting this and it had an amazingly calming effect on them. (laughs) So I appreciate that part of the advice as well as the rest of it. Um, Thank you so much for a really calm and rational account of uh, an ongoing breaking story that continues to have scary parts, but that, as you say, can ultimately be managed by getting to the absolute truths that are out there and then using logic and reason and risk-benefit analysis to try to get us to a, a manageable outcome and perhaps even to some potential treatments for, for the worst affected. Thank you very much for
2: your time. My pleasure. Thank you so much.
0: We'll be back with this week's playback in just a moment.
1: Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients. Each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com/business/podcast. Chase. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. JP Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member FDIC. giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with
0: T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobilecom slash now.
3: AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry, and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com strategic. That's oracle.com strategic. oracle.com strategic.
0: Now for our playback. I want to tell you, Gorsuch. I want to tell you, Kavanaugh. You have released the whirlwind and you will pay the price. That's Democratic Senator Charles Schumer last week speaking in a slightly unhinged tone, if you ask me, in front of the Supreme Court at an abortion rights rally while an oral argument was going on about an important abortion rights case. Since then, Schumer received intense criticism from President Trump, but maybe more significantly from Chief Justice John Roberts and a number of Republican senators. And he apologized, kind of, saying, I shouldn't have used the words I did. Here's why this whole moment in the news is actually a pretty big deal. Ever since Donald Trump became president, and in fact, even before that, when he was running for office, Donald Trump has made the federal judiciary one of his central targets. He has a specific goal in mind to undercut and undermine public trust in the judiciary. And he has a very Trumpian way of doing it. He singles out individual judges, often by name. He says that they're illegitimate. He points to who appointed them and says that that will determine what they're going to do when they're in office. And ultimately, he hints that he would like to be able to push them around. What Schumer was doing was borrowing a page from the Trumpian rhetoric of threat. Each time someone outside of the Trump administration does that, it tends to suggest that Trump's approach is perfectly fine. It tends not only to further undercut the judiciary, it also tends to suggest that we should all move to a world where it's completely normal and fine to threaten and attack judges. And there's one more problem with what Schumer's doing. It's pretty much guaranteed to backfire. In the case that was going on in the Supreme Court when Schumer was outside making his threats, the primary issue before the justices was whether the court would follow its precedent that would actually lead to the striking down of a Louisiana anti-abortion law or whether the justices would deviate from a relatively recently created precedent and go a different way. In that debate, Chief Justice John Roberts is the absolutely all-important swing vote. He, in fact, did not vote for the decision on which the precedent would be based in this case. So we know that he didn't agree with that case. But what he was thinking about, and this was very clear in the oral argument, was precisely whether to follow that precedent, even if he didn't like it, even though that would send the public message that the court was not following precedent. There's probably no more pressing issue in front of the Supreme Court right at this juncture than how much precedent should matter. Roberts is the swing vote. By attacking other justices, Schumer guaranteed that Roberts would have to come out against him. And in the process of doing so, Roberts would find that he did not want to signal to the world that he was listening to Schumer. Schumer very possibly cost Liberals, Roberts' own vote in this case. In other words, Schumer was really playing with fire. His words at the margin might be a decisive factor in pushing John Roberts to the conservative side in a case where his comments and oral arguments suggest he was at least toying with the possibility of sticking with the liberals on a precedent theory. We don't know how this case will come out, and we don't know how the other important cases involving present will come out. We do know that in this moment, John Roberts must be thinking about nothing but the question of precedent all day, every day. In that environment, it is remarkably unwise for the Senate minority leader to contribute to an environment where Democrats are threatening the courts in just the way that Donald Trump is. The correct narrative for Democrats, and indeed for anyone who wants to protect the independence of the judiciary and precedent and the value of the rule of law, is that the courts should be allowed to do their job and should be treated respectfully in the process. Schumer wasn't just wrong on the merits, he was dangerously wrong in the real world. Deep Background is brought to you by Pushkin Industries. Our producer is Lydia Jean Cott, with studio recording by Joseph Fridman and mastering by Jason Gambrell and Jason Rostkowski. Our showrunner is Sophie McKibben. Our theme music is composed by Luis Guerra. Special thanks to the Pushkin Brass, Malcolm Godwell, Jacob Weisberg, and Mia Lobel. I'm Noah Feldman. I also write a column for Bloomberg Opinion, which you can find at bloomberg.com backslash Feldman. To discover Bloomberg's original slate of podcasts, go to bloomberg.com backslash podcasts. You can follow me on Twitter at Noah R. Feldman. This is Deep Background.
3: Whether you're a savvy
1: spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks,